Hey everyone, welcome to Eagle Brook Church. Welcome to those of you joining us online. As you saw in that video, we had an incredible summer event here this last week called the Ground Zero Summer Takeover. One of the best events we put on for student ministries or even in the church all year long. Yes, that was a wrestling ring right here on the platform here at Lionel Lakes. It's hard to believe, but we'll do anything for our middle school students. Best of all, 42 middle school students made a first-time decision to follow Christ, and another 170 to, 172 recommitted their lives to Christ. Now you can clap for that. That's why we do what we do as a church. But today we are in the third week of a series called It's Hard to Believe. If you missed either of those first two messages, strongly encourage you to go check them out online. But today I'm continuing this series with a message titled, It's Hard to Believe, It's Not About How Good You Are. There's an old story that goes in kids' church, the teacher started asking the kids about what gets people to heaven. The teacher said, if I sold everything I own and gave all my money to church, would that get me to heaven? The kids yelled, no. If I gave candy to all my friends, never yelled at my brother or sister, and went to church every single week, would that get me to heaven? Kids yelled, no. Teacher said, well, then what would get me to heaven? One little boy yelled, you got to be dead. <laughs> There's the problem. It seems you got to be dead to get to heaven, let alone, or it seems you got to be dead to get there, let alone know much about heaven. Now, most everyone thinks about their mortality at one point or another in life. Christians. Non-Christians, atheists, Muslims, LeBron James, Rihanna, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, Justin Bieber, and you. It's a universal reality. Last time I checked, the mortality rate was still 100%. Now, most surveys show that most everybody believes there is something beyond this life, but that's pretty much where the agreement ends and speculation begins. Most world religions teach this common idea. How you live your life here will determine what happens there. Hinduism, live your life well now here. Come back better the next time around. Islam, whoever believes in Allah and the last day and does good, they shall have their reward straight from the Quran. Agnostic opinions, live life well. Do some good, be moral. If there is a God, he will be good and fair and will let me into heaven. I mean, why wouldn't he? I'm a blonde-haired, blue-eyed American who gives $35 a month to sponsor some child in Africa. Plus, I hold open doors for old women. Plus, I, I'm way better than that guy. I, I've never done, no, I mean, trust me, I've always done my best to. See, and this thinking leads to a belief system, again, most world religions teach. But I'm also afraid there is a healthy percentage of Christians who believe this as well. It's this belief that good people go to heaven. You know, the logic goes there's a good place reserved for good people with a good God called heaven. The only criteria to get there, just be good. And most everyone sleeps soundly at night because just about everybody thinks that they're good enough. In college, my, my roommate was a legitimately good moral guy. He had no relationship with Jesus whatsoever, no religious or faith upbringing. Well, one late night in our dorm room, we began talking about heaven and Christianity, and I started asking him questions. You know, what do you believe about heaven? Would you call yourself a Christian? 
I'll never forget as that conversation was over, I was walking down the hallway and he ripped open the dorm room door and yelled down the hallway, John, of course I'm going to heaven. I'm a good person. Where else would I go? See, the logic of good people going to heaven seems to make sense. The argument goes that first, it's fair. If you eat your broccoli, you get to have some dessert. Clean up your room, you, you get an allowance. If you do your job well, you get a raise or a promotion. If you get good grades, you go to a good college. Good college, good job. The world is predicated and built around a system of behaviors and rewards. So it seems if you're good, you'll go to heaven. Seems fair. The argument also goes that God is good. People will say since God is good, love must win in the end. And for love to win in the end, good people must go to heaven. We all know that bad people won't be there, you know? So those people, like serial killers, child molesters, rapists, terrorists, world-class sinners. Okay, we know that those people won't be there, but most everyone else will be in heaven. I mean, definitely me. The logic of good people going to heaven appears to make sense, doesn't it? Well-meaning, sophisticated, intelligent people hold onto this theory, and maybe some of you do as well. But let's start poking some holes in this. Because does it really prove that God is good? A good God would have to make it absolutely crystal clear just how good enough you have to be. And as good as you are, you're not really sure if you've been good enough. Because let's imagine a good person scale for a minute. Let's put kind of towards the bottom, but somewhere in the middle, Steve Jobs. Founder of Apple, creator of the iPhone, you know, Apple Watch. He, I read his biography, not a great guy, but there must be a special place reserved in heaven for the guy who created iPhones. Next, right above him, Paul Molitor, coach of the Twins, leading the Twins back to prominence, giving them playoffs hopes. He must be a miracle worker because he is doing a miracle this season. He must be a good person. Right above him, let's talk about some people who are legendary and known for their goodness. Mother Teresa, one of the most compassionate people to ever live. One of the most Christ-like people. I mean, she is really good. Right above her, Billy Graham has led hundreds of thousands of people to Christ. He is really, really good. But at the top of the scale, of course, Tim Tebow. He's not great at quarterback in the NFL, but he is a really good person. Plus, he's really good looking, if that helps at all. Uh, but just to round out the scale, let's throw some people on the bottom. Lady Gaga, Kanye West, just to round out the scale. <laughs> Let me ask you, where do you fall? And how good is good enough? I mean, do you have to be like slightly better than Steve Jobs, but maybe if you fall right under Paul Molitor, God will lets you in. And if God was grading on a scale, where's the line? You know, if God lets 50% of people in, what if you're that person who's 49% and you fell just short and all it would have taken is 10 more dollars to some charity to get to heaven? How bad would you feel? Then where is the good enough scale? See, I can't find it anywhere in scripture or otherwise. Furthermore, the good people going to heaven theory isn't that fair either. Andy Stanley uses the analogy of a classroom 
to describe this one. He says, imagine for a second, it's the first day of school and the teacher stands up and says, your entire class grade will be determined based on how well you do on the final exam. The teacher then says, class dismissed, there's not going to be any more meetings for the entire year. Panicked, you throw up your hand and you start saying, uh, <laughs> is there a syllabus? Is there going to be any homework or assigned readings or any kind of teaching at all? And the teacher just says, no, 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 no. None of that is necessary. Just be ready for the final exam. And out the teacher goes. Would you call that teacher a fair teacher? Because that's what we would have to conclude. See, here's the problem with believing in good people go to heaven. God has not given us a criteria for good enough. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, here's the syllabus, here's the passing grade, here's how you become good enough to enter heaven. Furthermore, Jesus never says, if you're better than Kanye West or Lady Gaga, you know, then, then you'll enter into the kingdom of heaven. See, there's no clear scale. There is no definition of what good enough can look like. Instead, let me offer you an alternative. And it's the biblical truth that I want you to hear today. It's not about how good you are. It's actually about how good Jesus is. So with the time we have left, I want to take a look at a word that you've probably heard before, especially if you've spent any time around a church. But, but maybe this word has lost its punch and meaning. Maybe you've never really understood the full weight and implication of this word, or maybe you've never really understood how it applies directly to you, but it is the key to the entire message, and it's this word, grace. Grace. Getting something that we don't deserve. See, grace is the key to understanding Jesus, heaven, Christianity and God. And there is a profound example of grace found in the Gospel of John, chapter 4. To set the scene a little bit, Jesus and his disciples have traveled from Judea to Galilee. And the shortest route from Judea to Galilee was through Samaria. But a rabbi, a Jewish rabbi like Jesus, would have never traveled through Samaria. A Jewish rabbi like Jesus would have always gone the long way around Samaria to avoid it. See, Samaria was filled with a people who were an ethnic mix of Jew, Roman, Greek, and Phoenician and were considered unclean. God-fearing Jews just did not travel through Samaria. In fact, even non-Jews hated the Samaritans. Everyone avoided them. I can't help but think of the places we often try to avoid, you know, inner city, bad neighborhoods, Iowa. <laughs> but Jesus boldly marched his disciples right into Samaria. And they came to a stop at a village called Sikar at a place known as Jacob's Well. And this is where the story picks up. Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. Now, this Samaritan woman would have walked a half mile or so from Sikar to the well, probably carrying a couple of decent-sized water jars with her. Women back in those days typically 
would have come in the morning or late at night to retrieve water when the desert temperatures were much cooler. But this woman came at noon, the heat of the day, more than likely because she wanted to avoid other people. Story goes on. This woman was surprised he was talking to her. She said to Jesus, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? It's hard to understand just how dramatic this was without putting our first century caps on. But in the first century, this was a dramatic exchange. A Jewish rabbi wouldn't have even associated with his wife or daughter in public, let alone another woman. Let alone a Samaritan woman. Let alone a Samaritan woman, as we will come to find out, that has been divorced five times and was living with a man who wasn't even her husband. She didn't even realize Jesus knew this about her yet, but he did. Add all of that up in a first century context, this woman was completely unworthy and she felt it too. That's why she was so surprised this Jewish man was talking to her. Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift that God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. She actually thinks that Jesus is offering her physical water, but he's offering her so much more. He says, anyone who drinks this water, the water from the well will become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Jesus is offering so much more. Now, it's at this point that Jesus says, I actually know that you've been divorced five times. I know that you're living with a man who isn't your husband, but, but then Jesus gives her his true identity. This is what it says. And Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. I am the Messiah. Now this woman realizes she's not talking to any ordinary man. This is the Messiah and the Savior of the world who is offering her the living waters of grace. So she, she drops her, her water jar beside the well, sprints into the village, and starts telling people, come and see the Messiah and the Savior of the world. And the story ends this way. I don't want you to miss this. Many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. Grace is getting something you don't deserve. This woman didn't pass any tests. She would have failed anyone's grading scale, and yet Jesus offers her the living waters of grace, and this grace liberates her from sin, religion, and her past. Don't raise any hands, but does anyone need to be freed from your past, past sin, past regret, past embarrassment. Imagine the shame and the guilt this woman was feeling and yet Jesus offers her grace and it set her free. Do you feel free today? Even though it's hard to believe, I wanna show you two ways that grace can set you free. And the first is this. Grace frees you from the guilt of sin. My wife, Emily, likes to pick up old furniture on the side of the road and refurbish it. 
Her favorite day of the year is called Trash to Treasure Day in White Bear Lake, where people leave out their old furniture trash for someone else to discover as their treasure. Well, as I said, Emily likes to pick up some of this trash and actually caught her on video doing this. Take a look. Carrying a chair because you won't get off the car to help me. And you just found it on the side of the road, huh? Yes. Where's it going to go in our house? In our living room. Oh, oh This video shows a couple things. One is that my wife is very strong, and so good for her. The second thing is that I'm not a great husband because I'm driving alongside of her, <laughs> filming her as she's carrying home. <laughs> but there's a reason I'm not going to help her, okay? Because she takes this, this furniture trash, and if she doesn't refurbish it and resell it, she stores it in our garage. And I don't know about you, but I like the garage to be used for its intended purpose, which is to store cars, not someone else's trash. But trying to be a generous husband, we've worked out a deal. Essentially, for a season, she can store this furniture, but when the season is over, it's time to take this furniture back out to the side or the end of the driveway for someone else to discover as their treasure, or she can fill the perimeter of our garage so at least we can get two cars in. Well, the season has ended, our garage is filled to the perimeter with some of this furniture, and we had yet to put two cars in the garage until last Sunday night. With one car already in the garage, Emily was driving our second car. I was in the passenger seat, and she tried desperately to squeeze the second car into the garage until she got to the very end and got our front bumper stuck on an old piece of furniture trash. Now, it's at this point that the emotion started to swell inside of me. I'm thinking, is our bumper scratched? Is it dented? Can't you see what the garage is supposed to be used for? Didn't we agree that the season had ended? Let's just say we got into a heated verbal exchange. And when Maddox, our almost four-year-old son, tried to defend his mom's trash, I yelled at him too. <laughs> Let's say the night, uh, you know, didn't go well. But the next morning rolled around, and I woke up feeling so guilty. I, why, why did I get angry at them about that? Was it really worth getting upset with the people I love the most? As I woke up feeling guilty, I, I walked down the hallway into the bathroom, and there on the mirror, Emily had written these words, I'm sorry, I love you. Will you forgive me? Check yes, check no. <laughs> And I was thinking, I don't deserve this. I mean, if anyone should be apologizing, it should be me. But that grace that Emily showed me began to free me from the guilt of sin. A little while later, Maddox, our son, woke up and crawled on my lap as I was sitting on the couch. And I gave him a hug. I said, I'm sorry. Sometimes we make mistakes. Will you forgive me? And he said, of course. But he's four. A little while later, Emily woke up to ask her forgiveness. But do you see that, that grace began to free me from the guilt of sin? Imagine the freedom this Samaritan woman had begun to feel. She had been divorced five times. Her past was so dirty. She didn't even consider herself worthy enough to be around other people at the well. She couldn't picture a grace big enough to forgive her sins. And it got me thinking. 
I know a lot of people who would say, yeah, grace sounds really good for those people. But for me, come on. You don't know about my past. You don't know the terrible things that I have done or am doing. Look how it works in God's economy. In Romans, Paul writes this, For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. And just a little theology for you. At the beginning of humanity, God gave Adam and Eve one single rule and law to follow. And they failed. They broke it. What God intended to be whole and perfect and beautiful, because of Adam and Eve, all of humanity became broken by sin. So God sent his son Jesus on a rescue mission to save us, to die for us while we were still sinners, knowing that some of us would yell at our spouses, knowing that some of us would get divorced, knowing that we would be anxious and depressed, liars and cheaters, broken, messy failures. But again, look how it works. Five verses later, Paul writes, as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. You see how it works? The greater the sin, the greater the grace. Have an abortion, God's grace is greater. Have an affair, God's grace is greater can't stop looking at pornography, God's grace is greater. Ever wish your kids would leave you alone for a day or a week or a month? God's grace is greater. Spend recklessly while 70% of the world lives on less than $10 a day. God's grace is greater. Haven't chatted with, prayed, or spent any time with God in weeks or months. God's grace is greater. Still hungover right now? hopped up on pills right now, ever wish that, that someone would do something for you, God's grace is greater, greater, greater. Now a chapter later, Paul writes, should we keep on sinning just so we can see how wonderful God's grace is? And he says, of course not. There's consequence to sin. But when we put our faith in Christ, our sins are crucified along with him, and the guilt of sin begins to lose its grip. Grace has the power to free you from the guilt of sin because God's grace is always greater than sin. Second and final way that grace can free you is this. Grace frees you from the demands of religion. Interesting to me in this story that Jesus didn't say to this woman, go and clean up your act and, and then we can talk. He didn't say, you know, go, go do these four things and, and then I'll accept and love you. See, religion tends to demand a change in behavior before you can belong. But Jesus, time after time in his lifetime, would accept people, love people. Make them feel like they belong all well before calling people to a change in behavior. That's the difference between religion and Jesus. Religion says do. Jesus says it's already been done. Religion says here's some more rules for you to perform and measure yourself by. Jesus says, come on. You can't save yourself. I have a gift to offer you. Paul writes in Ephesians and if anyone knew about this, it was Paul. He said, God saved you by his grace 
when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done so that none of us can boast about it. You know, on the flip side, some of us might be exhausted because we're trying to do things and perform for God on a treadmill with no end in sight. We've established that our world is built around a system of behaviors and rewards. So we let this type of thinking invade our own relationship with God. We think, you know, we perform, God approves. We do X, Y, Z, then God will accept and love me. But that's religion. Salvation is based on grace and a relationship with Jesus, not on how well we perform. Perhaps more than most, athletes struggle with an immense pressure to perform. So I had the opportunity to sit down with a world-class athlete, David Backus, who's the captain of the St. Louis Blues, USA hockey player, and an Eagle Brook attender. And before we get started, um, let me just read you the start of a newspaper article from April 17th of this year in the Pioneer Press. The journalist writes, David is one of the nicest guys you will ever come across. Smiley. Polite and with choir boy good looks. <laughs> He's also a very talented and hardworking hockey player. But just to make you squirm in your seats a little bit, the journalist writes, Oh, and one other thing about him. Minnesota hockey fans hate his guts. Just the sign of him gets their blood pressure rising and their pulses racing to dangerously high levels. So Minnesota hockey fans... This is your opportunity to practice and apply what we're talking about today, grace, okay? And if you need any more help, David is a brand new father to a baby girl who's just one month old named Stella. That's his wife, Kelly. But we had an opportunity to talk about the demands of religion and the pressure to perform. Take a look at this short interview. Hey everyone, sitting here with David Backus, who's attended Eagle Brook for a little while and also plays in the NHL, and excited to sit down with him and pick his brain a little bit and get to know him a little bit more. But first of all, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I grew up in Blaine, went to Smiley Park Schools, played hockey and baseball there. Uh, met my wife of seven years now. We just had a, a baby about a month ago, played college hockey at Mankato, and uh, ended up playing for St. Louis uh, in the NHL for nine years now, going to be my 10th season, and uh, loved every minute of it. You grew up in Minnesota, and if my memory serves me right, you played the Minnesota Wild in the playoffs this last year. What was that like? Not as successful as I'd <laughs> hoped it to be, but uh, I, I got, I kind of had an insight on how crazy Minnesota people were about hockey, and uh, here the Minnesota Wild announcers are calling me a Neanderthal and all the, all the other stuff that gets spread, but uh, in the end, it's a game, and, and wish the Blues would have had more success, the Wild prevailed, but uh, maybe we'll get them next time. Yeah, right. Now, you've been an athlete your whole life, and, and now you're an athlete on the highest levels of professional sports. What kind of pressure does that feel like to you just to perform on a daily basis? It's a ton of pressure, and, and as an athlete, a lot of times you're judged really on a stat line. You're, mm -hmm. you're David Backus, but you know, your goals, assists, and points, and penalty minutes, and outside of that, people don't really care who you are, what you do. If those numbers are high, they think you're the greatest thing, and if those mm -hmm. numbers are low, they like you to be somewhere else on some other team. So, I mean, you have some good games, and you have some bad games. How, how do you cope with that. Sometimes 
those good games happen and, and I need to give the glory to the Lord and sometimes the bad games happen and I need to know that God's using that situation uh, you know, to grow me as a person or to prepare me for some other you know, ex experience in my life. And that's kind of my take on it and it's really evened out those peaks and valleys that can come. Yeah, and one of the things I like about you um, as I've gotten to know you over the last couple of years is you're definitely a follower of Christ. And so on a daily basis, how do you live out your relationship with Christ and remind yourself that it's not about the performance? I'm still learning to tell you the truth mm -hmm. of, uh, I was baptized I think two summers ago and really the year before that started to grow in my faith and instead of having a religion and a routine, it was it became a relationship. Mm -hmm. And from that, you know, every day I'm trying to put things in perspective and to know that, you know what, it's not about performance. It's, it's what God did and Jesus did on the cross. That's mm -hmm. how I'm saved and through that grace. Yeah, there's, there's something so important in that, um, that you said that you don't have it all figured out. I mean, you're a work in progress and you're figuring out how to live in that every single day. And we all are. But what would you say to the people who are struggling with feeling like their relationship with God comes down to a performance? Well, I've, when I've really struggled, I've tried to connect more to Jesus and to the church. And whether it's my time in uh, Minnesota or my time in uh, St. Louis, we have a Bible study with professional athletes from all three major sports teams in St. Louis that get together. And that connection with a small group is something very profound, especially when you're coming from the same walk of life. We're all going through the same sort of struggles and we're all believers and we can kind of talk through things or, you know, trying to open up that big thick Bible and, and finding something in there that's meaningful to me. All those things, I think, whether you're a professional athlete or you're struggling with something else that's you know, maybe a little bit more crucial because other people have some more profound struggles and I feel for them, but I think the solution is the same as finding your roots and your relationship and trusting on the one who controls everything. You know, I'm not perfect at quoting Bible verses, but work as though you're working for the Lord, not for, for humans. And for me, that means put everything you've got into it. And at the end of the day, you can kind of take off your work gloves and your work boots and say, I, I worked my butt off today, left everything I had at my job. And if someone wants to be critical of me, you know, shame on them. I did everything I could. And I can, I can live a peaceful, grace-filled life after that. Yeah, that, that's great what you've been sharing with everyone. And I hope that we've all been paying attention because um, while you feel the pressure to perform as a professional hockey player, I think we all feel pressure to perform just in our daily lives, whether it's being a brand new father, whether it's being a parent or in our jobs, whatever that is, we all feel that pressure to perform. But the fact that God just simply loves us, um, that frees us up. And so, again, thanks for sharing your wisdom. And, you know, good luck next year, maybe. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming. <laughs> we can all thank David for doing that. He's a great hockey player, but he's an even better person. Just take my word for it. He's not perfect, but he knows the gospel of grace. Hear him say when he understood it wasn't about a religion or routine and it became a relationship, that's when he finally understood the grace that we are talking about. Jesus came to liberate you from the weight of performance, of having to, to measure up to a stat line. See, relationship with Jesus shouldn't be an exhausting effort to establish, justify, or prove ourselves. That's religion. There is nothing we can do to earn God's grace. It is simply a gift we have to receive. 
when the Samaritan woman finally understood and received this gift that Jesus was offering her, these living waters of grace, it changed her life. She dropped the water jar beside the well, sprinted into the village, finally compelled to change, and many Samaritans came to faith in Christ because of this woman's testimony. Religion rules, demands, and hard work. It might have motivated her for a while. It might motivate you for a while. But eventually, like everyone who relies on religion rather than grace, will become thirsty again. God's grace alone ultimately has the power to quench your thirst, to free you from the demands of religion, and then motivate you to change and obey God. So today, let grace free you. Even though it's hard to believe our sins, I know are great and many, there is a God who says, I can free you of that. I can free you of those sins. I can free you of your past. I can free you of that guilt. I can free you from the demands of religion. And this grace that God wants to offer you is found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And today might be your day to receive that grace. I'm gonna pray with and for you in just a moment. But for everyone else, maybe you've intellectually understood grace and now you want to live and breathe and experience grace's full liberating potential. I'm gonna pray with and for you as well. Maybe everyone needs to go home and memorize Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. God saved you by his grace when you believed. It's not something that we can earn through our good works. It's grace alone. See, grace alone through the power of a relationship with Jesus Christ has the ability to change your life, to free you from the guilt of sin, and to free you from the demands of religion. Before we pray, I want to offer you an ancient blessing that that Paul concluded many of the letters that he wrote in the New Testament with. See, if anyone knew what we were talking about, it was Paul. He knew the guilt of sin. He called himself a chief of sinners. He would have been on the bottom of that list that we talked about, the good people list. And then he tried the demands of religion for a while, but it didn't free him until he finally met Jesus and understood the grace of that Jesus was offering him. So Paul concluded many of his letters this way with a blessing that I wanna offer you. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Across all six campuses, let's stand for closing prayer. Today, there are people here who need to receive that grace for the very first time and begin a relationship with Jesus. I'm going to lead you in a prayer just quietly. You can pray alongside me right after I'm praying during this time. For everyone else, I'm going to pray for you as well because all of us as followers of Christ need to understand grace's full liberating potential. So let's all bow our heads and close our eyes. Heavenly Father, Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for giving us hope and a future. Thank you for the love that you have shown us even while we were still sinners.
for those of us that, that have already have a relationship with your son Jesus, I pray that we would be freed from the guilt of sin, that we would live out this grace, that we would be free from the demands of religion, that we would hop, hop off that treadmill and receive the grace that you are offering us. Help us to experience the full liberating freedom and potential